Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Today, we continue our look back at National Lutheran Schools Week. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we, uh, we're almost at the top of the hour, but now we're one minute past. So uh, we'll just pretend that we hit the, the top of the hour for, for our start. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, we give uh, Mrs. Bauman all the time that she needs. I am thrilled that she was able to join us today and really look forward to her presentation uh, along with all of the rest of you. Um, welcome back uh, for those of you who were able to join us before. For those uh, who are coming in for the first time this week, it is National Lutheran Schools Week, and uh, we are uh, celebrating National Lutheran Schools Week at Wittenberg Academy oh. by bringing in some experts uh, so you can sit at their feet and learn from them. Uh, and one of our experts uh, today uh, comes to us from Lutherans for Life. Mrs. Bauman is the director of Why for Life, and I will let her give you a little bit more background in terms of what Why for Life does. Some of you guys know that. Some of you have signed up for Wittenberg Academy's Why for Life team. Uh, if you have not signed up for Wittenberg Academy's Why for Life team, uh, make sure you shoot me an email uh, or shoot Miss Reps an email and uh, we'll, we'll get you hooked up with that. So without further ado, um, I'm just going to quickly remind everyone that our theme this year is In All Things, and that comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So without further ado, Mrs. Bauman. All right, well, thanks so much for the invitation for inviting me to come and speak to you. I am super excited to be here. Um, and I just, uh, I'll just say, if I start to cough, I apologize. Um, I just got back from Wife for Life in Washington, DC, which was a fantastic event uh, with the March for Life. Uh, some of you were there and actually at least one of you is wearing our t-shirt, so, so exciting. Today, let me just say, I am the director of Wife for Life and Wife for Life is really all about helping people your age and older uh, to be gospel motivated voices for life. So and give you opportunities not only to learn about life issues, but also um, opportunities to uphold life uh, through service and through worship, through celebration activities. So if you're interested, I'd encourage you to get involved in Wittenberg Academy's uh, version of the Life for Life group. Um, and if you want to know more, please let me know. We do have lots of online events and you guys are online experts, right? So you could participate and have no problem doing so. So today uh, we want to take a look at marriage and family and love and all sorts of things. How many of you someday want to get married? Okay, there's lots of hands up. I can see a lot of hands. Okay, well, maybe you're not quite sure yet. Um, but hopefully what we talk about today um, will help you kind of start thinking about that, right? Because the truth is, um, and you may not realize it, um, marriage might not be very far away from you. How, how old, how many of you are in high school? Just a show of hands. Yeah, quite a few of you are in high school. Um, and I used to teach high school before I joined Lutherans for Life. And I used to tell my juniors and seniors, you know, um, within five years, some of you will be married. And they used to think, 
I used to get these like shocked faces. What, what are you, are you serious? And, and the truth is, yeah, some of you probably will be. Um, I know I was married at 21. Um, and I know I like lived a long time ago in a place far, far away. And so um, that may seem like a, like an odd thing to do in modern society. And yet um, my oldest son is 21 and he'll be getting married this year. Um, and what I'm finding as I work with youth, with college youth, um, there's a lot of Christian, young Christian people who are getting married young. And, um, and you know, should God give them that, that opportunity? And it ends up being just a really, a really wonderful gift. So we're going to talk about love and marriage. Um, you know that the theme is in all things. And we know that Christ is before all things. And in him, all things are held together uh, based on Colossians 1, 7. Um, And we know that that is true of marriage too, even though, even though what it looks like, what looks like in the world is the exact opposite, right? When we look at marriage and family in the world, we see it's kind of falling apart. So I'm going to, and there's a reason for that. So uh, to get started though, let's talk about love. Okay. What is love anyway? I'm going to have a few quotes up here. I'm going to ask someone to jump in and read each quote as it appears. And we're going to, we just want to make sure we understand what this quote means. Okay. All right. So my first quote is from Dr. Seuss. Everyone seems to have some sort of, you know, knowledge about love. They have some sort of definition. And this is the definition that Dr. Seuss offers. You know, you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. Ah, okay. So you know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. All right. Keep that in mind. Maybe that's a definition of love. Maybe not. How about our next one? Have you ever been in love? Horrible, isn't it? It makes you so vulnerable. It opens your chest and it opens up your heart and it means that someone can get inside you and mess you up. Okay. Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil Gaiman from The Kindly Ones. All right. So here a definition is something that actually, you know, it kind of breaks you apart. It messes you up. It's horrible. Okay. What does Robert Heinlein say, though? Love is that condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. Okay, the condition in which a happiness, the happiness of another person is essential to your own. That's a very different definition than what uh, Neil Gaiman mentioned. All right, how about the next one? As he read, I fell in love with the way you fell asleep, slowly and then all at once. Okay, so as he read, I fell in love with the way you fall asleep, slowly and then all at once. Hmm, interesting definition, right? Okay. We're all a little weird, and life is a little weird. And when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with ours, we join up with them and fall into mutually satisfying weirdness and call it love, true love. Robert Fulgum, true love. Okay, so we have a definition now that love is just really weirdness, right? Mutually satisfying, compatible weirdness. Okay. Next. Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Okay. Like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. How about this last one? There is never a time or a place for true love. It happens accidentally in a heartbeat in a single flashing, throbbing moment. By Sarah Dessen. Okay. So it's not really a time or place. It just happens in a moment. Can't help it. All right. What do you guys think? These good definitions of love? Hmm, I see some of you nodding your head. Some of you kind of looking oddly. Well, you should look a little bit oddly at those. <laughs> let's, let's take a look then at what real love looks like. Because the truth is, God wants you to know what real love looks like. In fact, he is so clear about it that in his word, we have not only a definition of what real love looks like, but what real love isn't. It's not a rom-com. It's not a Hallmark movie. It's not passionate, intense, or selfish. And it's definitely not temporary. It's not a type of love that lasts only until someone else comes along who can make me happier. Real love is meant to last forever. And very clearly in 1 Corinthians, it has, it has certain components that are recognizable. You've all read this before. 
Um, I'll read it out loud. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All right. So it is not envious or boastful. It is not rude or selfish. Maybe some of those things that we already, that those definitions that we've just read, already we can think, oh, well, it's not that, right? Because when we look at God's word, who is the definition of love himself, we recognize that some of those other definitions don't really fit. In fact, contrary to popular belief, real love is more than a feeling. (laughs) Real love doesn't actually begin with sexual attraction. The truth is that's real lust, not real love. Now, again, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Desire isn't, isn't bad, right? We want to be attracted to the person that we love, but when desire for another person's physical appearance is the only thing that defines what you're calling love, then you probably haven't found it. Marriages, we know that are based solely on, on that sexual intimacy are going to fall apart, right? If a man and woman have nothing in common besides that, they're not going to be together for very long. So there has to be something more. Deciding to love someone, and it is a decision, is a decision that results in a permanent action. When we think, again, God is the definition of love, God decided to love you from the very beginning. And that decision doesn't change, right? When we date someone, it's kind of, you know, it may be fun to, 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 to feel attracted to that person or have that kind of giddy love, that, uh, that new love, which again, may not be love. But when we look at couples that have been together for um, a long time, do we see that? Do we like, do you guys see your parents getting all like giddy and excited about holding each other's hands? Just like show of hands. No, probably not. Right. And the truth is we don't want to see that. Right. We don't want to see that. Um, But the reality is that love does exist. So love is, is that permanent action and it isn't necessarily a permanent feeling of, of excitement, right? Um, we also know that real love uh, decides or desires to meet the needs of someone else. It places the needs of others above, above that individual who loves, right? So despite sin, love doesn't change. And you can see this in our, our relationship with our parents as well. So again, if I were to ask you, let's, I'll just ask you, how many of you have ever made your parents upset? Raise your hand. If you've ever made your parents upset. Yeah, every hand is up, right? Now put your hand down if your parents stopped loving you when they were upset with you. Now we should all have our hands up still, right? That doesn't change. Okay. Um, so our, our emotions, um, love, love is not just, um, love is not primarily an emotion. Primarily love is an action. Okay. An action that seeks to meet the needs of others. Um, when we look at research, we see that couples who seek to serve the other emotionally, spiritually, um, in all ways, they actually have more fulfilling marriages. Um, and that's whether they're, whether they're Christian or not. So we know um, that seeking to serve someone else, placing their needs above our own, um, is, is not only a sign of love, but also um, really important for marriage to last. Finally, we also see that real love can be seen, right? I just mentioned that it's not an action or not necessarily a feeling, but it's an action, right? So when you think about it, um, when you think about love, love shouldn't be a roller coaster. It shouldn't, shouldn't have like surging and waning devotion, but it should be consistent. 
even, even when sin happens. Okay, let's look at the next part. So love is all of those things, but primarily love is sacrificial. And again, this makes sense, oops, sorry, because when we talk about what God is the definition of, right, that God is the definition of love, we recognize that um, love is, is placing someone else above our own needs, right? And, and didn't Jesus do exactly that? Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice. When a man and a woman love each other, their actions are supposed to be sacrificial rather than selfish. And marriage is supposed to reflect Christ's marriage to the church. So marriage should reflect that sacrifice too. Okay, so let's take another look at those opening quotes. And I want you to tell me for each quote, is this indicative of real love? How about the Dr. Seuss quote? Is this love? No, I see shaking heads. No. And you're right. Tell me, why isn't it love? Reality changes. Like Good. different days, different stuff happens. Right. You love your parents, right? Are you always happy with your parents? <laughs> no, just like they're not always happy with you, right? Uh, your love, you're not living on cloud nine. Okay. Um, and, and reality does change, right? But love doesn't. Good. Okay. Let's look at the next one then. This is a great one, isn't it? Love is horrible. It makes you vulnerable. It opens up your chest and opens up your heart. And it means that someone else can get inside of you and mess you up. What do you guys think? Is this a good definition of love? No. Why? What is love intended to do? Is it intended to mess you up? No. What's intended to do? It's actually intended to support and to serve and to uplift, right? Marriage in and of itself, love is very life affirming. Okay. What about this one? Love is that condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. What do you guys think about this? Well, what's good about this quote? You're looking at the needs of someone else in this quote, right? And so is that, could that be a loving action? Yeah, right? When we put the needs of someone else. Will you always be happy in love? No. And will you always be able to make the person you love happy? Unfortunately not, right? So this quote comes really close, doesn't it? It comes really close. It talks about putting the needs of someone else above yourself. But when, it ha when the condition is happiness, it's important to re remember that love Though we hope it will bring us much happiness, it doesn't always bring us much happiness, right? And we can't always guarantee happiness for someone else. That's one of the things that the world tries to convince us is that if we're not happy, then we should probably find a different relationship to be in. But that actually isn't, that isn't a sign of love. Um, that lacks commitment, right? Um, so again, there may be times when you won't be happy but that doesn't mean that you, you uh, have been, that you should no longer love the person. Okay, what about this one? I fell in love with the way you fall asleep, slowly and then all at once. Does this define love? Well, it could, right? I mean, like you could fall in love slowly and then all at once. And certainly there's that friendship aspect that might be there beforehand um, that will lead up to it. So it could. But we know that 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 love um, sometimes is created as soon as as um, the moment arises. So the the moment your parents found out they were pregnant with you, they had love for you, and it didn't just start slowly. It happened all at once, right? They loved you um, from that moment, and so so. This could work in some occasions, but it's probably not the best definition of love. Okay, how about this one? <laughs> We're all a little weird. And uh, definition, uh, when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with ours, we join up with them and fall into mutually satisfying weirdness. What do you guys think? Good definition of love? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, that might define compatibility, but not love. 
All right. How about this? Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Okay, guys, this has an obvious answer. What is it? Yes or no? No. Who can tell me? Why doesn't this one work? Love is what? And action. An action. So we should be able to feel it or be able to see it. Sorry. Right? We should be able to see it in service to, to others. All right. And finally, there is never a time or place for true love. It happens accidentally in the heartbeat in a single flashing, throbbing moment. This one makes me like laugh the hardest. Um, this one is not a definition of love. What is this a definition of, guys? If you look at someone and you're like, oh, I love them. What is that a definition of? True love or true lust? True lust. True lust. Good job. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Okay. You guys are good. So now that we know what love looks like and you are love experts, let's talk about what does healthy marriage look like. Okay. So in order to find out what a healthy marriage looks like or what a good marriage looks like, we have to look back. We have to go back into time, into antediluvian days. That's a big, that's a big word. Um, but I'm guessing you guys know that antediluvian meaning before actually even the flood. Okay. So we're going to look at Genesis one and two. And when we look at Genesis one and two, we see um, marriage was created in the garden. And we see kind of two things about marriage that make it um, very important. First of all, um, we see that God is ordered and that his order creates and sustains life. And this is important because his order creates marriage as well. Okay. So God is ordered. Um, give me an evidence. Give me an example of this. How do we know God is ordered? Hmm. Did God create fish first or water first? Which did he create first? Water. What? Water. And he created water because if he created fish and then he's like, oh, I need something that fish to live in that fish isn't going to live, right? Did he create, did he create animals first or did he create vegetation? Vegetation. Vegetation, right? Because if he created animals first and they had no land to stand on and no food to eat, their lives would be over, right? But we know instead that God is very ordered in his creation and that his order sustains life. So he does things not in a chaotic way, but a very purposeful way so that those lives can not only come to be, but that they can continue to live. All right. So you, humankind, we were not created as an afterthought. God actually ordered his creation so that by the time he brought us into it, it we were the perfect, that creation was perfect for us and we were the perfect addition. Okay, so God isn't random and, and unpredictable. He's orderly for our good and for the good of creation. All right, and we see that order in marriage as well. Um, we know that in marriage or that in creation, at the end of each day, God saw that it was what? God looked at the day and said, good, good job. But then in Genesis 2, we hear something is not good. What is not good? It's the first time God says it. It is not good for what? For man to be alone. Okay. And so we see, first of all, there's an order, but then we also see that everything God gives in creation is meant to be a gift. And, and so the gift of a spouse is not only an ordered gift, but it is a good gift. Okay, so God is the best giver. He's the first gift giver and the best one. And from the very first moment, God prepares all of these perfect gifts. So he prepares this gift of a place for Adam. He provides the garden. He gives Adam a purpose. 
He uh, tells him, or he gives him the ability to uh, be a husband to the earth, right? To take care of the earth, to have dominion over it. Um, just like that relational aspect that God has between his creation, he then puts man over the earth and says, hey, now you take care of this. But in addition to that, he gives Adam, or he wants to give Adam the opportunity to have a oneness, a relationship with someone else. And so he provides Eve. And Eve is this perfect gift. And we know that Adam recognizes it because Adam, in, when he names all the animals, God gives him this, this opportunity to do so, right? He sets him over all creation. And Adam recognizes that there is no partner for him. There is no spouse. He sees the order in creation and he sees that everything needs a male and a female. And he's a male. Where's the female, right? And so because he's in perfect communion with God, he knows uh, that God is the creator. He is the created, that God is the gift giver, and he is the receiver. He looks to God for that gift. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Let us create um, a partner for him, a helpmate. Okay? So uh, that's exactly what he does. And when Adam sees Eve, does Adam recognize Eve as this perfect gift for him? He does. How can we be certain of that? How do we know for sure that he's like, oh, finally? Because there was no sin in the world. Okay, good job. There's no sin in the world. So we know that he recognizes it, that it's good. Good. What else does he do? In Genesis 2, and when you, if you guys have your Bibles handy, you can flip to that. And if not... Um, you know, look it up later so that you can see. But actually, he breaks out into poetry, guys. He actually, there's a section in Genesis 2 where you see the, the, the language change. You see the shape of the language. He starts to be poetic right now. Okay, so young men, just, you know, it's not real popular right now to, to be able to recite poetry. But I'm just telling you, if Adam did it, it should be good enough for the girls that you want to want to date someday too. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's very moving. He breaks out into to poetry, uh, giving thanks for this, this gift that God has given him, this gift that, that completes um, him and, and brings him, gives him a oneness and the opportunity then to create, um, to, to participate in creation by having children of his own. So marriage begins in the garden of Eve. And it is a gift that is pre-fall. It's a gift that God gives before sin comes into the world. So we know that marriage, even though today it's full of sin, marriage is meant to be a good and perfect gift. Okay? So let's take a look at all those things marriage was meant to be. Marriage was meant to be, first of all, a gift, right? And we just talked about that that the man and woman would be a gift to each other. Um, it was meant to provide unity and oneness, okay? This is, the, this is the gift that God gives a married couple, the ability to become one. And you know what? This happens not just uh, when they get married and, and they, um, they have sexual intercourse the first time, um, but this happens throughout their life. So you maybe, maybe you've noticed this. Maybe um, when you look at pictures of your parents when they were first married, they probably look different now than what they did back then, right? And part of that is age, <laughs> like it's seeing lots of nods. But part of that is also because married people start to have a tendency to look a little bit more like each other as they get older. Maybe it's because they eat the same things or they do the same things, but they start to become what we would say as Christians, one, they start to, to be more united um, in, in the ways that they think, in the ways, in the things that they do, in their habits, okay? And you see this unity and this oneness is very real. For people who've been married for many years, when a spouse dies, when a spouse passes away, a, a husband or a wife, you see there's a, there's a rending, a tearing apart, uh, from the person who is left, there's a, a great deal of mourning. And sometimes that lasts for years and years um, where they long for that other person because that other person has become part of them. Okay. 
It's also meant then to reflect the giver and receiver nature between God and humanity. And we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. It is meant to be ordered. And those order, that order is very clear. God establishes it in the garden. There's headship and there's helper. And we're going to define those two things in just a minute. And it is meant as um, a gift that enables you to bring life into the world, that enables you to have a gift. Okay? So let's talk about headship and helper, because that's always kind of something that our society gets wrong. Okay, so I want to know, what does it mean to be in charge of something or to be, sorry, I just told you, to be the head of something? What does it mean? It usually means to be what? To be boss. To be the boss. That means, that's right, to be the boss, to be in charge. That means you get to make all the decisions, right? You get to tell people what to do. All right, well, when we talk about headship, it's more than being in charge. See, being the head really means more that people are in your charge than the fact that you are in charge. It's true, when you're the head, you're in charge. What that really means is that you have people in your charge. It means that you have people now that you are called to care for and to provide for and to serve. So a man in a marriage is supposed to be the head, which means he's supposed to be taking care of and providing for and serving the people God has blessed him with because they are in his charge. And those people would be his wife and his children, right? Sometimes it means that he has to make difficult decisions. And um, those decisions, his wife might not always agree with him on them, right? She might have a difference of opinion. But his job, what he's been called to do, is make a decision that's not going to necessarily benefit himself, but for the benefit of the whole family. Headship actually means ultimately sacrifice, sacrificial service. So then what does it mean to be the helper or the helpmate? So um, this is also an area where maybe our society gets that wrong. A lot of times uh, society will say, well, so what you're asking women to do uh, is just be like second class citizens, right? She can't have any opinion. She can't be a leader, but that's actually not how God, God designed marriage. So a woman's place as a helper is not synonymous with insignificance. Instead, what it does is it frees her to do the very important things she has been called to do, and that's to care for and support those around her. So a woman is obviously made very different from a man, right? A woman uh, has the ability, unlike her husband, to actually carry life inside of her, right? From the moment that you were conceived in your mom's womb, she provided food from you for you. Well, within the first week, uh, she provided food for you, but then also she clothed you from the very beginning inside of herself. <clears throat> and so we see that a woman um, is designed to, to actually take care uh, and to love and to support and to receive and then share that love in a much more intimate way than a man was designed to do. And that even happens after a baby is born, right? Uh, when she feeds and, and cares for um, a baby, okay? So a woman then who speaks or acts like a man kind of you know, scorns the gift that God has given her. Um, she, she doesn't um, uphold that gift. She doesn't value that gift, right? Um, so this is different. It's very different from you know, what role you play, like whether you do the dishes or whether you mow the lawn. This is more of a, a relational role, right? We want to find, we, we need both people to have a marriage work. Okay. Are there any questions about that? Because that's kind of a tricky one. You guys are experts. I can see that already. Okay. So let's take a look then at what to look for in a spouse. A number of you said, hey, I want to get married. And that's great. Um, but we also want to be someone 
that others would like to marry, right? <laughs> okay. So what should we look for in a spouse? And these are probably things that we'd want to see in ourselves. Uh, that she's a Lutheran. Oh, that's a good one. I, you know what? I tell my sons that too. <laughs> or willing to become Lutheran, right? So that you, you kind of nailed it. That first one was faithfulness, right? So faithful to God, that you have a common faith but also faithful to you and to each other, right? You want to want someone who's committed to being married, um, someone who exhibits real love. And remember, real love is sacrificial, right? It wants to serve other people, not be served yourself. Someone who's committed, who exhibits the ability to, to be committed. So commitment is like following through, right? Um, someone who values family, someone who wants to have children if God blesses uh, them with children, because God did say uh, that this is a gift he wants to give during marriage. And this is one that I added. Okay, so I, I will put a little star there because there's God's word and then there's Michelle's word. All right. <laughs> so, so we don't want to have them on equal level. But those other things, those are all things that God's word says. So here's another one. Someone who's liked by your Christian friends and family. Here's the truth. Your life is going to be connected intimately and for a long time to this person. And so your friends and your family who know you best, if they see red flags, I hope they tell you and I hope you listen, right? If there are things they see that would be maybe bad for your health, right? Or bad for your future commitment or bad for your marriage. Um, I hope they do speak because they love you and they've loved you for a long time, right? So I would encourage you to listen, <laughs> okay? So what should you, uh, we know what to look for a spouse, but specifically, what about a husband? So guys, this is what women should be looking for, okay? Uh, so let's see, um, what you think about this. So first of all, it's very similar to what we said before. Someone who's faithful. Um, Mark chapter 10 and Hebrews 13 talks about this. Okay. Someone who's faithful to spouse, to family, and to God. Uh, you'll also want someone who is sacrificial. That chapter is a really great chapter that talks about the role of husband and wife and what marriage looks like. But uh, Ephesians 5.25 specifically talks about that sacrificial nat nature, that a man should love his family above his own life, that he should love his wife so much, like Christ loves the church, that he would be willing to sacrifice his life for her. Now, guys, if you are not willing to sacrifice your life for a young lady, you should not be marrying her. It's just, that's just the fact, right? Um, if you can't, if you would not love her enough to die for her, then um, that's not real love. All right. Uh, we know that a man is supposed to be a provider. He's supposed to be, um, provide financially for food, for a home. Um, he's supposed to provide the things that are necessary for life. Now that doesn't mean that he also needs to be able to provide like yearly annual vacations to Hawaii or awesome cars, or a mansion, right? He just needs to be able to provide the things that are necessary for life, okay? So no, no stress, guys. You don't have to be millionaires, okay? Um, but it also probably does mean that he's not 40 years old and living in his mom, mom's basement playing video games, okay? He has, he has a, a career. He has a job, all right? Um, he's a protector, so he should recognize, um, a husband should recognize that one of his roles is to protect his family physically, but also he's going to want to protect uh, his family from Satan's attempts to cause worry or distress, okay, which are other things that can cause a family to, to feel stress, okay? He needs to be a leader. These are spiritual leaders of the household. Martin Luther talks about this, but it's also very clear in Genesis 2, when God places Adam over Eve and over creation, that he's supposed to protect her and provide for her and, and lead spiritually, okay? Um, in fact, uh, not only in the home, but also taking his family to church, okay? Uh, and we know 
studies show that marriages are much more successful when couples attend church together. He should be appreciative. He should recognize that the woman that God has given him is a gift that is more rare and valuable than jewels themselves. Proverbs 31 talks about that. And so does first Peter. Okay. And he should uphold life. Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 talks about um, upholding this life, that, that the gift of wife and children are entrusted to his care. And he, re- he should recognize that he has a role in keeping, um, recognizing those gifts and keeping them alive. Okay. All right. So we know what a man should work, look like a husband. Let's take a look at what a wife should look like. So ladies, this is what we want to be, but also guys, this is what you want to look for. Okay. So again, there's much freedom in the gospel for distributing tasks. Okay. Um, but we do want to make sure that we, um, there are certain things that are absolutely necessary. So we want to find a wife who's faithful again to God, to her husband and to her family, someone who's sacrificial, that she's willing to place her, uh, children's needs and her husband's needs and the family's needs as a whole above her own. Now, is she going to be perfect with that? No, and just like the husband won't be perfect, um, but these are things that she she should desire. Uh, she's designed to be a helper, so she is a partner in providing home, and she assists her husband in a variety of ways. Maybe that's by um, having a job outside the home, by supplementing income. Maybe it's by providing meals or clothing. Maybe it's by managing the household, um, but she does she is uh, called to, to create that sanctuary of joy and love, um, to, to provide peace or to encourage peace in the home, um, to be respectful. And I use the word respectful, really what the Bible talks about is to be submissive. And, and submissive um, has this, the connotation of order, right? To recognize her place as helper, but it also means to respect the authority that's been put, placed over her. So I separated those into two. Okay, helper and respectful. Um, so a, a wife is called to respect her husband and to follow his lead. Even that doesn't mean she doesn't have an opinion, <laughs> and it doesn't mean she's unable to share it. But to recognize that he is the head, and so she wants to help him be a good leader in the family and to augment his leadership rather than to undercut it, rather than to undermine him uh, in front of others or in front of her, in front of children, right? A wife um, should be reputable. Proverbs 31 um, and 12.4 talk about this wife. Um, So her reputation is intimately tied to her husband's. And um, just as a a wife is a gift to her husband, um, that husband also gives her gifts, right? He gives the gift of the name. He gives um, the gift of the home. And so when she's in the public place, she carries his name with her. And so uh, we want to make sure that um, we we are reputable, that we we carry it in a good way. Um, she is a receiver and a responder. So she receives in the relationship. She accepts that husband's love and service. And then she responds with love and tenderness and support of her own. And she also should have a desire to be a life giver, right? To have children, uh, should God bless the marriage with that. Um, and she gets the, the opportunity to carry that life. Um, which is an important gift. Okay. All right. That's a lot of things that a woman is supposed to be and a man is supposed to be. And of course they will never be those things perfectly, but these are the things we desire to see. So when we look at marriage, we look at how marriage is actually a wonderful, beautiful gift that is life affirming. So when we have a man and a woman, a husband and wife, we can see that marriage, when they come together, actually uplifts and supports everyone, not just one person. It gives people an opportunity to use their gifts in service to others. And when we serve others, we serve whom? God himself, right? It's a place where grace, mercy, and forgiveness thrive. Good marriages, um, we know when you bring two people who are sinful to live together, they're going to need grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And so um, we, we see that those gifts are shared in the family, but not only shared, that's where they're taught, right? They're given in church, but they're really taught in the home. 
right? When we do something, we hurt our, our sibling or our parent, we're taught about forgiveness, about saying about repentance and forgiveness. And we're taught how to forgive. Um, families encourage us to have a we instead of a me attitude. Um, again, selfless and, and sacrificial. Um, and those are the things God calls us to be. And then it is actually the best place to raise children. And you know what? God's word tells us that, but so does research. Okay. And I'm going to share a little bit of research with you. Okay. Try not to get too hefty, but when we look at marriage, we see that marriage actually provides a great foundation. And this is marriage of two people that stay together, right? When we have, when you live with your mom, who's your biological mom, and when you live with your dad, who's your biological dad, that's the safest place for you to be. And it's the best place for you to be. Um, we see that uh, people who are raised in those families have higher graduation rates. They have less anxiety. They are less likely to be unemployed or to engage in illegal activities. We also see that families are less likely, um, that stay together are less likely to, uh, to suffer from poverty. Um, and then also we know that being with your biological parents just is very, very beneficial, okay, um, for, for how you view yourself. Um, they're, you're much less likely to, um, to engage in activities that would cause problems for you in the future, okay? Um, and it also reduces the, the possibility that you will be harmed, right? That you will, the, the probability of abuse. Now, we're going to contrast that with what's called cohabitation. And maybe that's a new term for you, and maybe it's not. But cohabitation is when two people live together who are not married, okay? Sometimes they live together before they're married. Sometimes um, one of them has been married, and they decide they're not married anymore, and they live with someone else. Okay, so when cohabitation happens, that actually is a really a, a very unsafe place very often for children and, and not a very... Um, life-affirming situation. So cohabitation increases unplanned pregnancies and increases abortion. So abortions, 80% um, of all abortions, and that's when a mother decides to uh, get rid of her child before the child is born, 80% um, of those abortions happen with from unplanned pregnancies. And more than 60% of unplanned pregnancies come out of cohabiting relationships. So that tells us something. You see, the world wants us to think that cohabitation is just the same as marriage, right? It's, it's a, an equivalent. But actually, those of you that are in high school, because you're facing this in the next few, few years, okay, you may date someone who wants to, let's just live together and see if it works out. Um, and, and that actually is so um, detrimental to you it is detrimental to life, okay? Just life in general. Um, but clearly, there is not a similarity, okay? There is, they are not equal. Um, if more women are getting abortions when they cohabit than when they're married, there is not an equality, okay? It increases the likelihood of activity, sexual activity in teens, okay? Um, if you were raised in a, a cohabiting family, it often ends in separation rather than marriage. In fact, significantly more often, some studies show up to 80% of the time and it increases the likelihood of abuse. And this is really the kind of the scary one. So children are 10.3 times more likely to experience physical abuse and 19.8 times more likely to experience sexual abuse when they're living with one biological parent and one non-biological cohabiting partner. In fact, the most dangerous place for a child to be is living with their biological mom and her live-in boyfriend. Some, story, some studies will actually say that um, children are 33 more time, times more likely to experience abuse in a cohabiting situation. Okay, that's significant. All right, of course we know there is a problem, a problem with marriage, and that's the problem of sin, right? Did God intend for sin to affect marriage? No, <laughs> no, he didn't. In fact, we even see that uh, the effects of sin in our marriage vows, right? Take a look at these marriage vows. This is what our classic marriage, vow, marriage vows look like. Guys, if there was no sin, which words would we be able to cross out of there? And I take you 
to be my wedded wife and have a husband to have in a hold from this day forward for better, for worse. Would we have worse if there was no sin? No. no. For richer, for poorer. Probably maybe we wouldn't have poor, right? In sickness, would we have sickness if there was no sin? No. No. To love and to cherish till death do us us do part. Would we have that in there if there was no sin? No. No. So what we see actually is that our marriage vows would look something like this. <laughs> okay. It would be for all the good things and it would be forever. Right. God intended marriage to last forever, but doesn't, it doesn't always. Right. And so we, we wonder maybe sometimes is healthy marriage even possible? And the truth is, yes, it is. Okay. Don't let the world convince you. Otherwise Christ makes it possible. You already know what real love looks like because you have it. You have it in your families. You have it from Christ. God's agape love is sacrificial and it is already alive in your life. So here's some hope that I want to leave you with. Not only do we have God's word, whoop, let me go back to this, but even the facts support what God's word, even like people who aren't Christian can't deny the research. Okay. So if you take a look at the research and you look at um, that first chart shows you um, church attendance and whether or not, um, those people stay together. Right. And if they are happy in their relationship and their marriage relationship, now, again, happiness is not the measurement of success. And yet good marriages are usually filled with much happiness, but you can see if neither partner attends church, those are the pink levels. The purple levels are if both partners attend church. So both spouses attend church and they attend together, they're much more likely to have a happy and healthy relationship. <clears throat> you can see in the second chart too, that um, there is a reduction in depression, mortality, and divorce. If two people, two married people go to church together. Now this doesn't surprise us, does it? Because here's the thing. Marriage, just like the rest of our life, relies on grace and forgiveness. And we find that in baptism, we find that in communion, we find that in God's word. So if married, married people are going to church and receiving the forgiveness of sins and being strengthened in their faith and in their, in their marriage, it is much more likely to succeed. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, we learn that love at church and in our families, right? Um, and those that, that are tied to church, they know what real love looks like. And you guys know too. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.